Welcome to episode 15 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho, formerly Incarcerated One. Among other things, I'm a currently a freelance writer, a criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction and Living Hope. Joel? Hi there, I'm Joel Barson, and my background is in affordable and supportive housing, and I'm Josh's buddy. True enough. More, more the pain for you, I suppose. <laughs> the, 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 the honor for me, the pleasure, Josh. <laughs> All right, quick shout out. I want to thank uh, Democratic gubernatorial candidate Bill Cobbs for uh, reaching out to me to do the podcast and for driving all the way from Detroit to meet me for the recording uh, and to be willing to talk about criminal justice reform issues in Michigan. If you haven't heard our special Michigan episode yet, it is episode 14, Bill Cobbs, and is available everywhere we are available. And next, you're going to interview all the other gubernatorial candidates, Josh? Well, that's kind of up to them. If yeah. I, I, I'm certainly, if Gretchen Whitmer, Dr. Syed, Sharif Anadar, Brian Kelly, Bill Schuette, or uh, Colburn are all uh, are uh, want to do it, you know, sure. <laughs> they should uh, just reach out. They should reach out. That's the way this one happens. So I would love to hear what everyone's, uh, or d- dive deeper into everyone's uh, platform on criminal justice reform. So today's episode, we're going to be talking about a kind of problem with a drug that has become a problem in prisons with the male. And that problem, we've talked about it a little bit before, that problem's with the drug Suboxone. This is where um, our podcast uh, connects with the uh, larger cultural conversation that's happening around um, opioid, um, uh, the opioid crisis in our country, Yes. Uh, to some extent, yes. I mean, there's obviously a larger addiction and drug discussion to be had about addiction recovery in prisons and jails. Hopefully we'll also do that at some point. And I think on the outside as well, although that's not really within the purview of our uh, podcast, but this is kind of like a fringe part of that discussion. But a pretty important one, especially in Michigan and several other states that are really uh, kind of confronting this problem right now. And the problem both of suboxone or drugs in prison but what was what I was struck by in preparing for the show uh, with your readings was the um, the rules that the uh, Michigan Department of Corrections has put into place to try to prevent the drug from entering prisons yeah we'll definitely talk about that uh, when we get past the kind of basics of the how-to kind of stuff but yeah there's a lot of I mean the reason it's a prison and jail issue is because as a result of trying to confront Suboxone in our prisons, they came up with a new set of regulations. So we're getting ahead of ourselves, though. As you mentioned, um, a good place to start, perhaps, is with some background on Suboxone. Yeah. Uh, you know, so Suboxone is an interesting drug. It's intended to be an anti-opiate, but it combines a low-level opiate with an anti-opiate and the combination is supposed to be able to help you wean off of a high-level opiate, which would be like a heroin or a, you know, uh, something like that, or a serious pain pill of some kind. Uh, and so uh, it was intended to help people, or is intended to help people uh, get off of opioid addiction. But because it's a low-level opiate, it also has the effect of, of being addictive at some level. And some people may be a little more familiar with methadone, which is the other um, 
noteworthy uh, drug treatment that's used where there's opioid abuse, right? Yep, yep, for sure. But what makes Suboxone different, if I understood correctly, is that methadone needs to be administered in a clinic setting, whereas a person can get a Suboxone prescription through their primary care doctor. Yeah, and this is kind of where the problems start uh, in a lot of ways, is for uh, until about 2000, I think it's 2009, uh, Suboxone came in a pill. And the parent company for Suboxone, uh, they... Uh, they were going to run out of their patent, basically, or at least the ability to use their intellectual property protections to stop generic competitors and regular competitors from making the drug. And so they had to bring it out in a new form that they could still maintain the patent for. And so they moved from a pill form to uh, really it's a strip. But it's like uh, it's like you know when you get the 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 fresh breath mint strip right. that you put under your under your tongue. Okay, yeah, it's kind of like that. And once it came out as um, as a strip, suddenly there were new ways to share it with people. Yes, and unfortunately, with jails and prisons, the way that people decided that it would be a good way to share it. Although you know, how often this happens is the matter of some serious conjecture. We don't really, the departments of corrections aren't always forthcoming with the information. Uh, but the idea is, is that because it's a strip and because it's got kind of a yellowish color, it can be masked into the mail. So for instance, if a kid was sending their parent a card in prison or jail Perhaps the other parent could find a way to hide the Suboxone strip in and among the coloring or among the whatever. And, and, and when it's a separate colored envelope or something like that might be a way to mask the Suboxone's presence. So, um, or in folds, I guess, is another. I know, and, and I know soon we'll be getting to this list that I have in front of me of the restrictions that have come in order to address this. But before we get there, Josh... You really want to get to the list of restrictions, don't you? Well, it, it, it was it's so striking and, um, you know, dispiriting and crushing. You know, it, it's, it really drives home, I think, a lot of themes that have come up. Uh, over the course of this podcast, um, but we're not there yet. Um, I wanted to ask you. It's a lot of teasing. You're teasing it I know. hard. I, I, really, I really, really am. Anyone who's anxious can look it up just right on the MDOC's website while they wait for us to. That's true. To it spell is on the MDOC website. Um, but before we get there, um, is there anything you could share from your experience that bears upon this? I mean, did you were you aware of? Um, Suboxone inundating the um, setting that you were in? No, not really. Uh, to be honest, you know, and I, I don't mean this as disrespect because as I've said before, I certainly have met correctional officers that I thought that were professional, but I've also met a lot of correctional officers that I thought were not particularly professional. And my understanding of most of the drug, how most of the, the vector through which most of the drugs reach prison was through correctional officers. Now, I mean, obviously that's anecdotal and they'll say the exact opposite and say it's all prisoners, even though we have a lot less opportunity to bring it in. Uh, but, 
you know, I didn't encounter this personally, but I'm not really the, I'm, I'm not a target market for this. Right. Uh, you know, but, it, but this is a pretty big deal. It's happening all over the country where this crackdown, I mean, everywhere from Colorado to, you know, Michigan. But uh, here's a little quip from a paper called Westward. Uh, but because of a drug war being waged behind prison bars, thousands of family members of state prisoners are facing tough to new restrictions on ways they can communicate with the incarcerated. Officials say the move is necessary because of the ease with which illicit drugs can be dissolved into certain types of mail and smuggled into prison. The chief culprit of the moment is Suboxone, a prescription drug used to treat symptoms of opioid withdrawal that can also provide a euphoric high. Suboxone is typically dispensed in super thin strips, similar to a breast strip, and the thinness makes the drug ideal contraband. It can, can, be, can, it can be concealed in the folds of greeting cards or under crayon drawings and glossy postcard images. So sort of like what we were talking about before. So um, in my reading, in preparation for this episode, I didn't come across anything um, such as statistics about um, how pervasive Suboxone is. Uh, to your knowledge, is there any data on this? You know, I've seen some, and here, here's what I've seen. There was, I guess, the ACLU has had lawsuits in several jurisdictions trying to fight for the mail policy to change back. And one of the arguments that they've made in those is that there's very few examples that are documented of this actually happening. Now, there were no citations in the documents that I saw that led me to other research on that. Mm -hmm. And so as far as I know, okay. you know, it's, it's a mystery to some extent. Well, someone who's listening to us though, um, might say, well, so be it. If it's happened one time or a hundred times or a thousand times, you know, who could blame the authorities for wanting to try to prevent it as much as they can? What What's the downside of them screening more carefully? Um, you know, it, no one would say that it's a good thing for drugs to make their way through the mail um, into prison. So what's the big deal about well, prison systems um, screening for it? That's uh, spoken definitely like someone who's never been strip searched after a mm -hmm. visit. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so say more. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, sure. I mean, pers this is a tough discussion for me from the get-go because I am not a drug user. Uh, the last time I probably tried any drug was in the early 90s, you know, at any level. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't even drink. Mm -hmm. uh, but I am 100,000% opposed to the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. And so... To my way of looking at it, it is that we make it impossible for people to uh, have access to things uh, that makes it more lucrative mm -hmm. and makes it more likely to cause, like, for instance, uh, a market to develop mm -hmm. and violence to develop around that market. Mm -hmm. uh, I know the research fairly well on this and the drug war started officially in about 1971 mm -hmm. while Nixon was the president. And since 1971... We have never, in all that time, reduced supply. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So our only goal since 1971 was to reduce supply. Mm -hmm. Supply has never been reduced, really. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what does that mean? What we've succeeded at is created a market for the drugs mm -hmm. that costs, that because of the enforcement costs, uh, means that the price goes up. 
and the violence goes up to protect the, the, the products and the cost. So I am with you 100% in everything you just said, but maybe clear something up for me. Are you um, suggesting that um, uh, even in prison, um, there should be ready access? I'm saying if someone is addicted to opiates in prison or jail, mm-hmm. they should have access to a way to get off of those things. Here, here. And, it, yeah. you know, be it methadone or be it, uh, you know, suboxone mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with medical care mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a controlled environment. So um, another way of saying that is um, individuals in prison shouldn't need friends and family members to be uh, sneaking, attempting to um, sneak Suboxone into them. They should have access to genuine recovery support, including pharmaceutical recovery support inside prison. Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, and I, I would hope most folks would agree with us. But, I mean, once again, that speaks to the... Um, you know the the idea that prisoners should be tr- treated humanely, like any of us would like to be treated. Well, except that unfortunately, on the outside, those services don't exist either, for the most part. I mean, to some extent, they do, mm-hmm. but you know, only certain jurisdictions are starting to experiment with even things like needle exchanges. Which the first time I read about the success rate of needle exchanges was when I was still in high school and we still don't have them widely across the country, even though Mm -hmm. they overwhelmingly reduce bad outcomes. Yeah. That's a different subject to some extent, but it's another example of where these laws go along. And one that I'm fully on board with with you, I've mentioned, you know, being fortunate enough to work for an organization where we do dispense needles um, to allow for a safe use um, under a harm reduction philosophy. We, we distribute um, safe crack use kit, kits and, and so on. So, so you just said a, some magic words for me, which are harm reduction. What is that, what is that harm reduction? So harm reduction, um, as I understand it, I think, Josh, you're more knowledgeable than me, but it's a philosophy that informs um, uh, my workplace and that I fully believe in um, is an approach to, um, to recovery support that... Um, uh, emphasizes um, safety um, and dignity. I think those are the two things that come to mind for me. That a person who may, um, uh, whose life may include substance use, still is entitled to respect, um, to um, uh, to dignity as a person, and to be able to do whatever they're going to do in the safest way possible, um, and that that can fit into a journey journey of recovery. Uh, well, I think a great yeah. example of that is, you know, if someone were, you know, and they've decided for whatever reason, whatever stage of addiction they're at, whatever, that they're going to use. Mm-hmm. In the world of harm reduction, you know, you might get access to a needle. You might be in a controlled environment where people are looking out to make sure that you don't die mm-hmm. or overdose. And the, and the quality of the medicine, whatever one you're using, is probably higher. And uh, at the same time, you're not harming anyone else. Mm-hmm. You're not destroying any property. Mm-hmm. You're not doing anything to try to get your next fix or whatever. And the alternative is, let's try it in another world. You're in a regular neighborhood outside of a controlled environment, mm-hmm. and you're at, at constantly at risk of being put in jail or prison. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
you're at risk of violence, you're at risk of bad drugs, you're at risk of an overdose, you're at risk of getting shot, you're at risk of being so desperate to get another hit that you'll go rob somebody. And to my, I just don't understand what the argument is for why it's a good idea to put someone in an environment where, I mean, and, and people say, well, what about the cost? The cost is much higher because it's criminalized. Right, right, right. Uh, that is what causes the cost to go up for the most part. And the only difference is like, how many people listening to this podcast, for instance, take some form of pain reliever? Right, yeah. You know, you don't say, hey, I'm just going to, you know, let's criminalize your ability to medicate your pain. And a lot of the addiction that's happening because of the opioid crisis started because drug companies pushed opioids. Right. And so for the the onus to be put on the person who had a broken arm and someone gave them an opioid and it's so darn addictive that they can't get off of it, that doesn't make them a terrible person. And it's almost impossible to quit. If you look at, I mean, the evidence on this is overwhelming that it's... uh very hard to uh there's a reason why it's such a gigantic you know more it's caused more death in this country than virtually anything else including heart disease wow. uh wow. and so the idea that this notion that we're supposed to continue doing this terrible set of solutions this criminalization of addiction that really has been a disaster i mean a medical and public health disaster on an unprecedented scale mm-hmm. kills more people than cancer no. I mean, we talk about cancer all the time. This is preventable. Right. right. You know, I mean, and, yeah. and so think about it in a jail or prison if yeah. you're, you know, in that situation. So I take it, you know, we've stipulated that you and I are both um, harm reduction harm reduction enthusiasts. <laughs> um, but I, 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 I guess I would conjecture that the harm reduction philosophy has not made its way into prisons. Uh, not to my knowledge, uh, at least not any of the ones. I mean, the uh, really the whole idea of even addiction support and treatment hasn't made yeah. it into, you know, aside from the you should quit or you'll get tickets yeah. or you'll get, you know, punished. Yeah. So um, in order to prevent Suboxone from making its way through the mail system into prisons, um, the MDOC has... That's um, the Michigan Department of Corrections for anyone who's... And many other departments of corrections. It um, it it now has these um, these special controls on mail. Um, do you want to read those, John? Sure. Okay. This is from their actual document. Personal mail will be removed from the original envelope and placed in a plain envelope. For so, before I go into this, if I am on the outside and I'm sending mail to someone in prison or in prison, because it's the MDOC policy. I have to follow all these guidelines or the mail will not be delivered. Uh, so, And there are so many guidelines here. After I finished reading it, I wasn't sure that I could successfully send a piece of mail to somebody in prison. It, 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 there are so many rules. Yeah, it's a lot. So first is personal mail will be removed from the original envelope and placed in a plain envelope for delivery. The original envelope will be discarded. You should include the prisoner's name, their MDOC identification number, and your return address on the envelope. You should also include the prisoner's name, MDOC identification number, and your return address on the mail included inside the envelope. Mail containing stains of any type, including but not limited to perfume, lipstick, oily substances, watermarks, bodily body fluids, etc., are not allowed. 
mail which includes, includes the use of crayon, highlighter, or other markers on the paper, glitter, lipstick marks, unusual stains, body fluids, perfumes, oils, or other foreign or unknown substances on the paper are not allowed. Mail written or printed in colored ink is permitted. Mail that is taped, pasted, otherwise joined or fastened to another item by other than a staple is not allowed. Greeting cards must be no longer than six by eight, single fold, commercially produced and made of standard cardstock with no embellishments, including but not limited to cutouts, jewels, raised areas, etc. No raised areas. Okay. Etc. Okay. We don't know what etc. means, but okay. it's etc. So it could be a lot of other things too. I always love etc. as in things that are prohibitive. <laughs> Mail including photographs. You thought I was done. Mail including photographs and pictures are allowed only if written or printed on white standard weight white standard weight paper. White lined paper is permitted. Mail including photographs or picture and pictures received on non-white heavyweight, i.e., greater than twenty-four pound stock or construction paper, or using cardstock or photo paper is not allowed. And that's not actually it. Additional information regarding prisoner mail can be found in PD 050 Prisoner Mail Policy. That's just the summary. And uh, I saw another version of this that was printed in a Detroit News article. It says it must be sent in white envelopes only. Padded cardboard or tear-resistant envelopes will not be allowed. Stickers of any type, including return address labels, are prohibited. Mail containing stains of any type, including perfume lipstick, we went through that one, are not allowed. Only mail written in blue or black ink or lead pencil is allowed. Mail must not contain glue or non-transparent tape. Greeting cards must be no longer than 6 by 8 We did that. Have a see. Yeah, we did all that one. Yeah, so that's pretty much it. Between the two of those and whatever etc. means, because that actually means that they can exclude pretty much anything that isn't specified, uh, somehow you're supposed to know how to send your card or letter. And and sort of... Do you know what, when you're writing stuff, do you know what, what gauge the card, the, the paper is? No. I, yeah. I wouldn't. And, and apparently, if I'm writing a letter, I need to do it in a sterile environment, um, because if I get any accidental oils or marks on the paper i could disqualify it yeah but you know the it's easy to sort of i would think a person could take in this list and it almost seems comical except that it's tragic and sad because of what it really means for the ability to have meaningful personal um exchanges with folks who care about you and that you care about right yeah, just think, for instance, if you haven't seen your child yeah. in months, the difference between a card, a, a, basically a sterile piece of paper that has some writing in blue ink on it and a hand-designed card in crayon makes mm-hmm. to you. Right. Uh, or just, you know, a lot of times I think in these instances, because of the way it would be followed, your one of your loved ones or family members would probably have to write the letter for your child or for whatever so that they can, because they're just not going to be capable of, of meeting all of these requirements, most right. likely. Uh, and that's pretty significant. And even more problematic is we get, re- I've gotten reports. I mean, this is the issue that I've heard about more than anything else. When I talk to other people and families who are involved in, in you have loved ones who are incarcerated or from people who are incarcerated, is this one issue? 
Is that because mail was such a vital form of human connection? Yeah, I think there's very few things you get to look forward to every day in prison, and one of them is definitely mail, uh, and especially mail from someone that you particularly, you know, yeah, care about. Yeah, so... A little anecdote that I should probably throw in here. You know, for instance, this Christmas, at one of the places that I uh, sometimes uh, volunteer with, the Michigan Council on Crime and Delinquency, uh, we were doing Christmas cards for inmates. Uh, you know, so we would just write a, you know, some good wishes and, you know, have a happy, you know, happy Christmas or whatever holiday you celebrate, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And just to write those cards, every card took about 20 minutes to write to make sure that it, it was consistent with every element of the policy. Wow. You know, and, you know, this could seem like a narrow issue, but it, it, it speaks to, um, you know, this over restrictiveness, the rigidity and our failure to see prisoners as having universal human needs. Um, and I don't know what's more important than the need for meaningful <coughs> connection, right? Right. And, you know, I mean, as the ACLU put it, you know, I talked earlier about them suing a couple of the other states and a couple of the states have dialed back a little bit because of these suits. But this is from one of the ACLU letters that I found. Four decades ago, the United States, the United States Supreme Court observed that the weight of professional opinion seems to be that inmate freedom to correspond with outsiders advances rather than retards the goals of rehabilitation. This observation has been repeatedly reaffirmed since then. Family is an important part of the rehabilitative process, and mail is very important to inmates and their families. It is particularly important to have good communication with family and friends, as they are the only ones who will help the person after he is released, find him, he or she is released, find employment, a place to live, transportation, and reestablish relationships, which all go toward the goal of rehabilitation. Indeed, in our experience, those ties are equally important to institutional security. Without them, individuals may feel they have little to lose. Wow. You know, before we wrap this up, um, Josh... It well, does... we got to talk about alternatives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. When we get to that, um, this whole process of um, prisons opening up everybody's mail and scrutinizing it to this degree um, is a... Uh, a tremendous invasion of privacy as well and uh, that didn't really come up in our reading or preparation but could you speak to that that's kind of a tough one you know i mean on the one hand yes uh you're absolutely right that there is a giant i mean obviously they have the right legally to read almost anything that comes through there for security reasons uh is that problematic yeah I mean, but I think it's going to be that one's a tougher fight probably than a lot of the other issues in this, Mm -hmm. because at the core, it's going to be hard to argue because of some of the things people could write in letters to inmates about that could impact the safety of the facility. Uh, We'll talk about more about that in the next episode, actually, um, which is about violence in prison. Um, You know, it, it, it. I see that as a tougher lift. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, th- does that mean it's okay? No, it's, it's depressing yeah. and sad that there really is no privacy. Uh, on the other hand, I guess in a sense, I think we're all getting used to the idea that in most areas of life right now, uh, there's very little privacy left. It seems so. So 
Um, there are alternatives, though, right? Yeah, there are. I mean, obviously, the first one we talked about, you know, that would be the one I really wish in a perfect world would happen, which is the notion that we would stop uh, trying to fight, even in prisons, the I- failed methods of finding ways to recover from addiction, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, unfortunately... Uh, you know, we're still in the minority, even among a lot of professionals on that question. And there certainly are some some dangers from things like overusing a Suboxone or, you know, those kind of things. And it is addictive. And that's why I think the important thing is, is that we have to have better, you know, health care and, and, and places where it can happen in a safe environment. Yes. Um, you know. I think the second and probably the most likely, and I've talked to multiple, I was at an event for Michigan Citizen for Prison Reform. They had a legislative day uh, at in Lansing the other day, and I spoke at that event. And the uh, I kind of took a straw poll of all the people from the other organizations that I know are concerned with this. Uh, Michigan Citizens for Prison Reform, uh, one of their, their really, their big involvement is trying to get better uh, integration between families of incarcerated people and the Michigan Department of Corrections. And so, uh, and then I also talked to uh, the American Friends Service Committee folks. And all of us agree that probably the best solution in Michigan right now would be, you know, right now what we have in Michigan is what I would call a disaggregated mail system. So every facility of the 40 or so, however many facilities, I've forgotten how many there are. There's a lot of them in Michigan. There are, each one kind of has their own mail room. Mm-hmm. And there is there are actually scanning machines that you can buy to detect Suboxone. But that scanning machine costs a lot of money. It's like $100,000, which sounds crazy. But when you realize that, you know, what they'll say is they can't afford it because they'll put... They don't, you know, they don't have enough money to put one in every facility. But the truth is, you really could centralize that function, or at least that function, of the mail service and have one facility that scanned all the mail before it went to all the other facilities uh, for the Suboxone problem. And in a sense, they're already paying a, a bunch of people, I'm guessing at least one person at every facility, right. to, you know, to, to scan the mail Right. Uh, to make sure it meets all of these requirements. And I'm, I'm guessing that the cost of that one machine is going to be a lot less. I mean, they have to check mail for other things, and they did it way before this, but the way they check it is different and much more labor-intensive now because of all these requirements and having to check for each one of these things before they decide if a letter goes through. And what a beautiful thing if that were to happen and that were to mean the beginning of, uh, you know, of personalization again in correspondence um, from loved ones. Absolutely. And you think about it and, you know, like I've talked to uh, people who say that people at the women's facility, which is pretty close to us, have had mail delayed up to two months because of this policy. And, you know, I mean, I, I think they try to, but I mean, let's say that someone did write you a letter and they told you that they wrote you a letter and then it doesn't come. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and the MD, I don't, I mean, I'm guessing most of the time the MDOC isn't going to tell you 
hey, you had a letter, it got rejected. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Right. You know, uh, so yeah. So it would be a beautiful thing. And I just think the idea that connection to your family is one of the things that keeps you on the path of trying to find a better way home. Right. That it's in our own interest to try to make sure that there is a, there is that hope that your family forms the circle of that hope of coming back whole or more whole so that you don't turn to despair and you don't lose hope and you do try to do the right things while you're incarcerated. Yeah. You're here, Josh. It seems to me that this is like one of these issues where uh, on the surface it seems uh, sort of narrow, but really it isn't because it, it speaks to... Um, you know what whether or not we have any compassion as a society um and any desire for um for people who are incarcerated to um you know to to have access to these very simple modest humble joys um that are so easy for us on the outside to take for granted yeah, and I think I mentioned this last time too. When you remember that, some, and I think one of the primary premises of this whole exercise in this show is that people in prison, you know, for the vast majority, are much more than just the crime that they committed. And right. we talked about like the prisoner art, yeah. or you know, if you've ever heard someone who is a musician who plays in prison, mm-hmm. or you know, I mean, these things will show you how much more. How much more people bring to the table than just a crime. And the more we can do to connect people to the parts of themselves that are really amazing and are really awesome and really can become something amazing when they get out, you know, the better off we all are, I think. Well, thank you, Josh, for introducing me to this issue. I never would have thought about it otherwise. And now it seems to me that it's really at the core of um, where I hope reform um, in our justice system moves. Well, thanks to you also, Joel. And I guess that's another episode in the, in the, in the tank, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yep. yep, yep, yep. All right. Decarceration Nation is available from iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are aggregated. We are also now available on Spotify. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you'll come back next week. Thanks.